and you can um, know that everyone in the room understands exactly where you're coming from. So I appreciate your being here, and I appreciate your transparency with your praise this morning. I'm going to ask Ken Miller if they cry at mighty men. Do you think? Do you think? I don't know. I don't know that that happens. Okay, you should have verses and outlines. That's what Wendy is handing out to you at uh, the moment. And every week, those will be, if you're new to Women in the Word, every week you'll have a set of verses and outlines on your table with your small group. And I know you had a lot of things to pick up this morning, but every week pick up those verses and outlines so you will be able to follow along as we have our lecture this morning. You know, it kind of felt like fall this week, didn't it? it uh, it's almost getting there, and that was, that was fun. Of course, in Texas, we know it'll be summer again before long, just about the time. Do y'all change your winter and summer clothes out? Well, just about the time I do that every year, then it's 104 degrees, and I'm here in a wool jacket and a skirt because I can't find anything else. We are continuing on this week with our series of James and John one of two of the twelve disciples, and on your screen you have pictures of James and John, and I believe that James is on the left and John is in the blue. That's what they look like when I knew them. So uh, uh, that's actually how Chris Childs told me he was going to put them up there with James on the list. So I think that we can trust uh, Chris for that. Okay, so you should have your verses, your outline, your Bible. We know that's James and that's John, so let's take a go at it. All my life, when I was growing up, my dad had this weird thing where he had to listen to Paul Harvey every day at noon. He would leave work. When I was a little girl, he would leave work exactly at 12 and drive home to have lunch at home, and he would listen to Paul Harvey on the way home. And and it got to the point where no matter where we were, even if we were on vacation, and we were, he was listening to Paul Harvey at noon, and we would be in some random state, and he would be wrecking the car, trying to tune the radio to see where Paul Harvey was on the radio, and my mom would be saying, stop, you're going to kill us all, you know, the way moms are supposed to do when dads are driving erratically. Um, But amazingly enough, One of my grown sons now does the same thing, listens to Paul Harvey on the radio. In fact, he has the cutest wife, and right after they got married, she was uh, just young, a new graduate from TCU, and one day she said to me, do you know he does the weirdest thing? He listens to this old guy on the radio every day at noon. And I said, yes, I'm sorry, it's genetic. You don't think those kind of weird, quirky things are going to be genetic, but they really are. They turn up every other generation. It skipped me and turned up in one of my sons. But, you know, if you know anything about Paul Harvey, you know that the distinctive of his radio broadcast was that at the top of the broadcast, he would give you just a little snippet of a story. He would tell you something that seemed kind of random and matter-of-fact, and usually it was the end of the story. And then at the end of the broadcast, he would give you what he said was the rest of the story. And that made you understand why what he had talked about before was so remarkable. In fact, I remember one time uh, when I was probably with my dad, when we heard this uh, little thing about Sylvester Stallone and how remarkable 
the success of all the Rocky movies were and how many millions and gazillions of dollars he had made off of Rocky number 135, however many of those that there are. Well, then, of course, the rest of the story was that Sylvester Stallone had actually grown up in Hell's Kitchen as a shy, skinny, poor, dyslexic child and that the Rocky character was actually his story. It was the story of how his personal story of fighting for success and winning against all odds. And this morning, I want to start out with the end of the story as we talk about the apostles and brothers, James and John, because I think it makes the rest of the story as we're going to look at their life and their walk with Jesus all that more amazing. Now, this James that we're talking about this morning, I want to clarify the fact that uh, he is not to be confused with the half-brother of Jesus, who's also named James, who wrote the New Testament book by the name of James. That is not the James we're talking about this morning. It's also not the other apostle James. Yes, that we have another apostle named James, and he is called James the Less or James the son of Alphaeus, or James the younger. And we're going to be talking about him on down the line. Our James is the older brother of John, and he is chosen for a heart-wrenching distinction among all the apostles. And that is the distinction of being the very first of the apostles to follow Jesus not only in life, but also in death, because James was the first apostle to be executed for his faith in Christ. His faith in the resurrected Christ and his work in the first century church actually are not well chronicled in the New Testament. We don't see James anywhere except in Acts where we see his death. But obviously his work for the church and his passion for spreading the gospel throughout the entire New Testament world were real and effective because 14 years after the resurrection of Jesus, his ministry in the name of Jesus provokes the wrath of Herod. And James is arrested along with some other people that are identified with the church. But James alone, out of all the apostles, is beheaded. Acts 12, 1 and 2, on your verse sheet, says, It was about this time that Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. James had walked with Jesus and he had learned with Jesus in his day-by-day relationship with Jesus. He had been loved by Jesus and 17 years after his first encounter with Jesus, he willingly dies for his faith. Without a doubt, he courageously suffers and sacrifices. Now, in contrast to James... John, his brother, that we're also going to talk about today, his younger brother, survived possibly the longest of all the apostles. In fact, remarkably, he may have been the last living, surviving witness to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ when he died. Can you imagine what that must have been like, the last person on the earth to have actually talked and walked with Jesus? He died around 98 A.D., and for over 70 years, he was an amazing, remarkable witness for Jesus. He was not only an amazing witness in the length of days that he preached Christ, but also in the superlative way that he made sure the truth was known. He wrote more of the New Testament 
than anyone else except Paul. He wrote the Gospel of John that we're going to look at several places today. He wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And of course, it was this Apostle John that wrote the Revelation. For over 70 years after he met Christ and was loved by Christ, John survived against amazing odds and through incredible persecutions to tell the world about Jesus. Even after watching his own brother, his older brother that he had first met Jesus with, be beheaded for his faith. Can you imagine um, how hard that must have been for all the apostles, but particularly for his very own brother to observe that? Even after that, John never wavered. He never stopped teaching. He never stopped proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. So these brothers, the apostle James and John, were actually the bookends on the length of days that the apostles ministered and served Christ on the earth. James served for 14 years, the shortest amount of time, before going home to be with his Lord and Savior for eternity. And John served for over 70 years before um, dying a natural death at a very old age and going to be with Jesus. Both were remarkable in their lives, They were remarkable in their ministries and remarkable in their deaths. And on your outline you have James and John crossed the finish line of their lives with amazing faith. But that, ladies, is how they finished. It's not how they started out. So let's take a look at the rest of the story and discover how our fearless and faithful apostles John and James overcame persecution and eventually death for their Lord. Now, Deb told us last week, if you were here for our opening lecture, you heard our teacher, Deb Hagood, talk about the fact that one of the common threads that bound all of the disciples together was that they were all seeking the truth. And that is where we first see James and John as we encounter them in the scriptures. Our first glimpse of them is together as they are fishing with their father, Zebedee, and Jesus walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee calls out to them. And I've put these scriptures in Mark on your verse sheet, Mark 1, verses 16 through 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So we see right off the bat that James and John are not only brothers, but they're also businessmen who fish for a living, along with their father, who's named Zebedee, and their partners, Simon and Andrew. And they appear to be relatively well off um, because not only do they have business partners, but they also have hired help, which was unusual in their day and age. Now, without the timeline of the ministry of Jesus that Deb gave us last week, this would look like a pretty amazing encounter. It would look like, if you just picked up the scriptures and, and read it without knowing that timeline, that they had no idea who Jesus was, that they were just these random men fishing and some stranger they didn't know came along and they left everything 
um, for him. And it is a phenomenal encounter, but I want everyone to remember that Jesus at this point was not unknown to them. He had already been in ministry, as Deb told us, for probably a year or possibly a year and a half. He had uh, been baptized by John the Baptist. He'd gone and been tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and he had come back and been ministering and uh, uh, being involved around the area of Galilee. The Zebedee brothers had been watching his ministry during that time. And more than likely, they had been talking among themselves and with their business partner, Simon and Andrew, and the other acquaintances that they knew. They had been talking about Jesus. I can imagine their conversations. They had to be saying, is he the Messiah? Is he really the one that we have been um, waiting for? Last week when Deb talked about Andrew, we read in the Gospel of John um, that Andrew and John were actually disciples of John the Baptist and spent time with Jesus as John's disciples. Turn with me in your Bibles to the first chapter of John, verse 35. We're going to read that again this week. Refresh our memories. John 1.35 says, The next day John, and this is John the Baptist, when John writes his gospel, he never uses his own name. So when you hear John the Apostle use the name John, he's talking about John the Baptist. The next day John was there again with with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went, and they saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah. Now, the two disciples that John is talking about here are himself and Andrew, which Deb told us last week. So he's the one that actually writes of the encounter that he and Andrew had with John, with Jesus back when uh, he was baptized by John the Baptist. Now, James isn't mentioned here in this passage, but we have to believe that because he's so closely connected to the other three, he's in business with um, Simon and Andrew, and he uh, is John's brother, that there's no doubt that if the three of them had an encounter of this magnitude with Jesus, they would have gone straight back to James and said, oh my gosh, we have found who we've been looking for. We have found the Messiah. We also have to remember that James and John were Jews who had all of their lives heard that one day the Messiah would come, and they have been looking for him. When John the Baptist began to preach repentance, they were there. John was one of his disciples. They were there. They were listening. They were taking John the Baptist's message to heart, and they were seeking the truth. When John the Baptist tells John the disciple, Jesus is the Lamb of God, we see that he doesn't just shrug and say, eh, so, no big deal. He takes note of that, and he follows him, and he spends the day with him. And then he goes back and no doubt shares his conversation. I wonder what they talked about during that day. But he shares that conversation with James. So here in Mark... 
which we read a few minutes earlier, when Jesus appears on the Sea of Galilee and he says to our brothers, James and John, come follow me. We can know that James and John on some level have already realized that their hearts had an emptiness, a hole in it that nothing else in their life up to this time has filled. It was an emptiness that had led them to listen to John the Baptist in the first place. And it was that emptiness that had caused them to long for the Messiah that they had always heard about. Now, they're grown men, and we've already read that they have businesses and they have families. Their fishing business had fed their families, and it probably gave them a name in the community. They were probably well-established in the community. And their attention to the priests at the temple, because they were upstanding Jewish men, they obviously were involved in the temple and whatever the uh, Jewish rituals that they had to take a part in, they, were, they probably did all that. But neither of these, not their family, neither their business, nor their religion, filled the hole in their hearts that they knew was there. You know, it's the same problem that we face today. 2,000 years later, all of us in this room has much in our lives. We have families, we have jobs, we have our routine of getting up and we probably have a place in this sanctuary or another sanctuary that we sit every Sunday morning. But at the end of the day, none of it fills the hole in our heart that is actually shaped exactly like the Savior, that's shaped exactly like Jesus. And when James and John drop their nets by the Sea of Galilee and walk away from their boats and walk away from their father, it's because they've been doing all the right things for years. They've been working and raising kids, having friends, going to the synagogue, going to the temple, but never have their hearts been jolted and moved as they were that day when Jesus came by and said, come follow me. When I was in nursing school a hundred years ago, it seems like now, one of the first major procedures I ever scrubbed in in the OR was an open heart surgery. Now, all I wanted was a simple appendectomy, but I got an open heart surgery. And 35 plus years ago, open heart surgery was still a major deal. It's not like today where you kind of drive through and they work on your heart and you go home the next afternoon. But back then, it was a major deal, and they actually opened up the patient's chest. They literally stopped the heart muscle. They maintained the uh, blood pumping on what was called a heart and lung machine. And then there was a surgeon that would work on that stopped still heart, and he would repair a hole or a leaky valve or whatever it was, whatever damage was on the heart, he would repair it. And then there would come a moment in the surgery where they would take those two paddles and they would literally place it on that heart. And just like on TV, they would yell clear and everyone would jump back. And then they would give a jolt of electricity to that heart. And it was a very tense moment in the room when you waited to see, was that still heart going to take that jolt of electricity and come to life and begin beating. James and John had their hearts jolted that day by the Sea of Galilee when Jesus called out to them. Their hearts 
had been missing. Their hearts had been defective. It had been missing a piece, and he was the missing piece of their heart that they had been seeking. Now, when you remember James and John, we talked last week about putting a face on all these disciples so that you could remember them. When you remember James and John in the days to come, one of the things I want you to remember about them is that these were men that had it all. They had success, they had family, they had religion, but they recognized that their hearts had a hole that only the Messiah could fill. On your outline, James and John were men who realized they had a Jesus-shaped hole in their hearts. Revelation 3.20, on your verse sheet, and this is Jesus talking, and he says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus had come in to their empty hearts. Now, James and John were not only seekers of what their hearts were missing, of what was empty in their lives and longing for, but we see here in Mark 1 that we read on your sheet just a few moments ago that these are guys that are bold enough and headstrong enough to follow what their heart has been missing when they discover it. And you know that's not true of everyone. Sometimes we are timid and we don't go where our hearts would lead us, but that's not true with them. These are bold, headstrong guys. And we also see when we look back here at the text, the scriptures tell us that these are guys that were not idle. They weren't just sitting around saying, you know, if I have nothing to do and what my heart really needs comes along, I'll be able to follow it. These were guys that had a life. They were in the middle of a busy day. They were in the middle of something when Jesus appears on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They were repairing their nets, which was important work. Um, They were under the direction of their dad because it says Zebedee was there, and I'm pretty sure that if a dad's around and their sons, he's giving them orders and telling them what to do. They were alongside their employees. It wasn't in an arena where no one could see what was happening. And yet, they went to Jesus' side the second he called. And that tells me that our brothers, James and John, are not wimps. These are pretty courageous, bold, impetuous, and headstrong guys. I have grown sons. You've heard me talk about them many times. And over the years, since they've been grown, I've watched how hard it is for them to step out from under their dad's direction if he's around. Now, it's a little easier when when his back's turned. They don't have quite as much trouble going a different direction when his back's turned. But if they're with their dad, they feel compelled because they want to please him and they want his approval to do it his way. So I think this was probably hard for James and John because their dad was there when they walked away. And I think it's equally hard for men to be different in front of other men You know, they don't want to be the one that does something that all the other guys are not doing. But James and John are bold, and they are impetuous enough and headstrong enough to answer the call of their own hearts and follow Jesus. They drop their nets in front of their own employees, in front of their own dad, and they willingly follow the Savior. Now, I was reminded when I studied this over the summer that even though that this takes place by the Sea of Galilee a couple thousand years ago, that we have all had a similar experience as James and John had right here. All of us who are in this room today have on some level 
felt Jesus call our name and say, come on, come follow me. We've all kind of had that tug on our heart in some form or fashion. Certainly, many of us in this room have had that tug in accepting Jesus as our Savior, and a lot of us have done that. We have filled that empty hole in our heart with the Savior. But it's a little bit harder when we're talking about following the tug on our heart to be Lord and Master over our lives. Just like James and John, we are challenged to make life choices when Jesus says to us, Come and follow me. We have to be bold enough and we have to be headstrong enough and courageous enough to leave behind some of our encumbrances in life. Perhaps we have to leave behind some of our friends or a job or even family members in order to follow Jesus. Even though we are not fishermen, I think, ladies, that each one of us has nets in our life too, nets that we need to drop. And each one of us has people watching to see if we're really going to drop those nets and follow after Jesus. Sometime today, and I'm making this challenge to myself, and I want to ask you, sometime today, sit down and maybe make a list of the things that are encumbrances in your life. Something that you could consider a net that you're holding on to that is keeping you from dropping it and following Jesus like he wants you to. Maybe in our lives as women, it's commitments. Maybe our nets look like the fact that we're busy. We're president of this and chairman of that, and we have to drive here and there. Maybe in our lives, it's material things. Our encumbrances, are our nets look like having to have the right address or driving the right car. And maybe in our lives, it's simply pride. Our encumbrances and our nets look like the need for the right friends, the need for the right clothes. Whatever it is that keeps you from following Jesus, whatever your net or encumbrances might be, make that list today and pray over it and ask Jesus himself for the courage that we see right here in James and John, the courage to be bold enough and headstrong enough to drop our nets and follow Jesus completely. And as you think about your nets today, I want you to remember the faces of James and John. On your outline, James and John listened to the needs of their heart, they let go of their nets, and they followed Jesus. John 10.10 on your verse sheet says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. To have the full life, ladies, we're going to have to put down our nets and follow Jesus. So our brothers, James and John, are off on a journey of a lifetime. They've gotten out of the boat. They've walked away from dad. They've walked away from their careers. And if you did your homework this week, you know that Jesus actually gives them a new job description. I hope you talked about it or had time to talk about it in your small group. No longer are they fishermen. Now they are fishers of men. On your verse sheet, Matthew 4.19, Jesus actually says that. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Now I want you to know in the text here, it doesn't say come follow me and you will already be fishers of men. Jesus says to them, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. 
there's going to be some work involved in this. In his omnipotence, Jesus knows the hearts of these brothers that have willingly and boldly dropped their nets and gone with him when he called. He knows exactly who they are. It's not a surprise to him. In fact, when he calls them to be his apostles, when he brings that circle in a little bit farther and he prays and he chooses the twelve to walk with him, when he calls out to them and designates those apostles in Mark 3, 16 and 17, he even gives them a new name. He says, these are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boniages, which means sons of thunder. I think Jesus called these brothers sons of thunder not only descriptively, letting letting us know that these are not shy, retiring, laid-back kind of guys, but I think he also gives them that name affectionately. He knows who they are. He knew who they were the minute he laid eyes on them. And he knows who they need to become in order to begin the church that's going to be his body. He knows how their boldness, how their thunder is going to spread the gospel. But he also knows the selfishness and the um, selfish ambition that goes along with being headstrong men are going to be chiseled away day by day by day in their relationship with him. In fact, in John 17, one of the last moments that Jesus is actually with his sons of thunder, he even prays for that process to occur after his death, after he's gone. He knows that their hearts are going to have to be continually changed. John 17, 17 on your verse sheet, Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And that word sanctification means the process of growing more like Christ every single day. Jesus knew that was going to be work on their part. Now, Deb told us last night, and I hope you took note of this, that last week that Jesus did not have another plan to take salvation to the world, to spread the good news of the gospel. His plan for the gospel to be spread throughout the world, so that it would come 2,000 years later to us, his plan for it to be lived and taught and multiplied in people's lives rested fully on the shoulders of the sons of thunder and the other ten apostles. He didn't have a plan B. So it's going to be through his relationship with him that he is going to mold and make the sons of thunder into fishers of men. Now, all the men in my house are avid fishermen. I don't know how many of you out there are fisherwomen. For those of you that are not, don't have fishermen at home or don't ha- are not fisherwomen yourself, you may not know what an art fishing actually is, how much planning and preparation and practice it takes to be a good fisherman. And now it's possible that you could go fishing once and have beginner's luck in fishing, but it really is something that you have to learn. And a couple of years ago, my sweet husband hired a fishing guide to take he and I out on a day-long fishing trip for speckled trout in the Laguna Madre. It wasn't a birthday present, thank goodness. It was just something he had in mind. It wasn't one of those, guess what, honey, you've got for your birthday, a fishing trip. But um, anyway, he hired this guide to take us out to fish for speckled trout. 
and I caught, with that guide by my side all day long, I caught the most amazing speckled trout you have ever seen. I mean, record-breaking speckled trout, and I have the pictures to prove it. You don't have to uh, take my word for it. And so the next day, after we had fished with this guide all day long and caught boatloads of amazing fish, um, my husband and I took our little bitty boat out, and we went back to the very same spots with the same bait and the same, um, and guess what we caught? Nothing. We caught nothing the next day. One day had not made us fishers of trout. With, without the guide, we were totally lost. And the same is true with James and with John. One day, and as we're going to see even one year with Jesus, does not turn James and John instantly from sons of thunder into fishers of men. On your outline, James and John let their day-by-day relationship with Jesus changed them. And that's really what we see in the scriptures. For James and John, life change is a marathon, not a sprint. And it involves their willingness to be with Jesus day-by-day, to not say, I'm out of here, this is hard, to not say, I really have other things I need to do in my life. They were willing to be with Jesus day by day and let that process change them. And we have a great example of their need for change in Luke chapter 9. When Jesus is not received with open arms by the Samaritans, we're going to read that in just a few moments, it's on your verse sheet, but Jesus is traveling, he wants to send them ahead to make arrangements for him to stay in this town in Samaria, and the Samaritans don't want Jesus there. And so when they're not received with open arms, James and John show us the sons of thunder, their sons of thunder personalities and reveal their vengeful, prideful selves. Luke 9 on your sheet says, when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. I thought this was... um, Uh, very interesting in the life of James and John. When Jesus is snubbed, these guys break out the big guns. Now, I would have probably said, I am never speaking to those Samaritans again after this, or we are never coming back this way again. We're taking that other highway. We're not going to stay with the Samaritans. But they simply go straight to, we've got the power, let's incinerate them. (laughs) But as you see here, Judgment belongs to God. It does not belong to the sons of thunder. And you have to take note of who receives the rebuke here. It's not the Samaritans that rejected Jesus. He never even mentions that. But he turns to them and looks at them and rebukes them. And in verse 56, we see how they respond to it. It says simply, And they went to another village. So James and John, who start out wanting to punish others for the treatment of Christ, instead, it appears here, that they have willingly accepted his rebuke and travel on with him. Now, I have to imagine that if you were known around town as the sons of thunder, it would not be in your character to accept rebuke lightly. But what we see here is life change occurring. Even the sons of thunder, after associating with Christ, are willing to take his rebuke 
and to stay committed to him. They don't leave the race before they cross the finish line. Revelation 3.19 on your sheet says, this is Jesus talking, those whom I love are rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Through the love and discipline of Jesus, our sons of thunder have begun to be earnest in their lives and to learn what it looks like to repent. But just like us, one rebuke from Jesus is often not enough to change our stubborn hearts and our stubborn characters. And James and John's worst moment, um, the one which reveals without a heart, without a doubt, their true condition of the heart is yet to come. We're not going to um, look at this closely, but in your homework and probably in your small group, you talked about in Matthew 17 and in Mark 9, Jesus takes his inner circle, James and John and Peter, and he takes them up on the mountaintop with them, and he gives them probably the most amazing glimpse of anyone on this earth has ever probably had. He pulls that curtain back for these three just for a moment, and they see Jesus transformed. His face, it says in the scriptures in Matthew 17, shines like the sun, and his clothes are bright. And then a cloud descends, and they hear the very voice of God acknowledge that Jesus is indeed his son. And they respond with humility and fear, and they do fall down on their face gratefully because I think they probably would have died if they had not, but they do fall down on their face. And you would think that this would be a moment when their life is changed forever, when every bit of boldness and pride and ambition is gone from their life. But it's not true. It's not to be the case. Jesus is not done with the process of transforming the sons of thunder into the fishers of men. Because not very long later, the three of them are back with the 12 disciples and they're walking along the road and they get into an argument like those of us that have mother, are mothers and you've had your kids in the back seat, you know, when they get into that argument. No, I'm the, no, I'm the, you know, it, in my day it was who sat in the front seat. Now I know children don't get to do that anymore, but in my day we had to have a schedule of whose week it was to sit in the front seat. Otherwise we had a fist fight in the driveway every morning. So you can just imagine how Jesus has to be like, Oh my gosh, guys, give it up. But he doesn't. Mark 33, uh, Mark 9, um, 33 through 34 on your sheet um, tells us about that time. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the road they had argued about who was the greatest. Yeah, I mean, just, you just can't believe it, can you? But they did. And he responds to them the way he always responds to them. He responds to them with love and with truth. And even though the scriptures don't tell us that James and John are in the middle of this debate, I can guarantee you that they were in the middle of this debate about who was greatest. They had just heard the voice of God. They had just seen Jesus in all his glory. They were feeling pretty great. And I, even though he didn't want them to tell anyone about that experience, I think it slipped out at some point. (laughs) At some point in time, Matthew 18, 2 and 4, 
Jesus, this is Jesus' reply. He called a little child and had him stand among them. He said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom. You know, Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. He says to them straight up, James and John, you're going to have to change. But he doesn't stop loving them, and he doesn't stop walking along that road with them. And to their credit, they don't stop taking his rebukes. And I think their lesson at this point in time was lost, because we're going to go to their worst moment, I believe, which is in Matthew chapter 20. Turn real quickly uh, with me to, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to read a couple of verses there. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down to ask him a favor. What is it that you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. John and James's mother is named Salome. We'll see her again at the foot of the cross with Mary and with John. In fact, there are a few commentators out there. If you read much about James and John, there are a few commentators that actually think that Salome may have been Mary's sister, which would have made James and John cousins of Jesus. And that might have been just a smidgen of the reason why they have the boldness to go and ask. She's thinking, and they're thinking, hey, this is going to be a family deal. He's the king, and we're going to be right there with him. You know, we'll be in the royal family. There were other commentators that didn't mention this, so I don't know that we can ever have any assurance that there was actually a family relationship here. Um, We have the same account in Mark 10 where James and John themselves go to Jesus, and it's the same incident. She was a part of it. One of them writes that she actually is the one speaking. Another one writes that they were the ones speaking. But it is the same incident, even though the accounts differ. And I think this gives us pretty good insight into the family. Salome, their mother, perhaps even more than most mothers, although I think we're all guilty of it at any point in time, she had ambitions for her dear, precious boys. And when asked by them to go to Jesus, she was more than willing to participate ambitious apples don't fall very far from the tree, do they? I think that their ambition had been fostered probably in their family and it had been encouraged and she herself has her own ambitions to deal with. But Jesus is remarkable here. Instead of being frustrated once again with James and John, which would have been more than justified again and again and again, he answers their inappropriate request with the appropriateness of truth and love. They think they're asking for power and position and affluence. Jesus knows without a doubt what they're really asking for is suffering, the same suffering that he's going to be facing shortly. And he knows that they still, even at this late date, even as he's on the road to Jerusalem and headed to the cross, they still have it backwards. The highest positions in the kingdom are never reserved for those 
are, the highest positions in the kingdom are reserved for those who are the most humble, not the most ambitious. And what Jesus really wants for James and John, and we're going to see that happen, is for his sons of thunder, is that they would want to be worthy of such a position in the kingdom, not simply that they would want the position. Instead of being frustrated with his selfish, ambitious sons of thunder, he uses this opportunity to teach them once again what true greatness is and to share with them that his own life, the purpose of his own life, is going to be to serve, not to be served. He points that out to them. He models it to them in the Last Supper where he washes their feet. And we're not going to read that because of time. But I want you to know that it's not actually until after his death and resurrection that James and John do finally become everything that Jesus has wanted them to be. Every lesson that he has taught them day in and day out, patiently and lovingly, finally come together in their lives. And they begin, after his resurrection, to understand the lessons that he was trying to teach them about the balance between greatness and humility, the balance between suffering and glory. The Apostle James remained a man that was courageous and passionate and headstrong and ambitious all the days of his life. He never gave up those personality traits. But because he allowed his heart to be refined by Jesus and because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, he learned to use what had been his personal weaknesses, what had been stumbling blocks over and over and over again in his life. He learned to use those weaknesses as strengths for God's glory. James became passionate for Christ. He became ambitious for the kingdom of God, and he became headstrong to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. He was transformed from a son of thunder into a fisher of man. In fact, Eusebius, who was an early church historian, records that the jailer that led James from his cell to his trial when he was arrested by Herod here in the book of Acts, this jailer was so moved by his testimony of faith that day that he immediately fell to his knees in front of James, begged for his forgiveness, and accepted Christ in his own life. And later that day, they were beheaded together. And John, his story, we're going to continue next week. But I want to close by summarizing what James and John teach us about being disciples real quickly. The first one is that James and John were men who had it all. They had religion, they had prosperity, they had family, they had friends, they had lives just like you and I do. But their hearts had a hole in it that was big. We live those same lives, we have those same hearts with a hole in it. We all have that Jesus-sized hole. If you're here today and you have family and friends and all of those things in your life, but you're thinking, I've got that hole in my heart, don't leave today without talking to me. Let's talk about that hole in your heart. Secondly, as disciples, James and John teach us that in order to follow him, we're going to have to drop those nets, ladies. We've all got those encumbrances that look like different things in our lives. For some of us, it's people. For some, it's activities. For some, it's material things. Take time later today and think about 
the nets that you hold in your hand that you need to let go of to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And finally, when we started today, we talked about how James and John crossed the finish line of their life with amazing faith. But we learned the rest of the story. We learned that that's where they ended. That's not where they started. As you can see, they were a major work in progress from the time they agreed to follow Jesus. It was lesson after lesson after lesson for these men that Jesus loved. And they did a lot of things wrong. But you know what they did right? What they did right was they never left Jesus' side so that their ongoing relationship with him, that day by day by day, getting up with him, eating lunch with him, going to bed with him, refined their hearts until their weaknesses became their strength. And just like James and John, we're going to do a lot of things wrong. But we should never leave his side, realizing that for us, too, it's a relationship. And it's that relationship that turns our weaknesses into our strengths for the glory of God. Pray with me. Father, we're just grateful. We're just grateful for you, for your patience with us, for your love with us, for the fact that Jesus fills that hole in our hearts. Father, I pray that we would all be honest today and that we would take a look at the nets that we hold in our hands that keep us from following hard after you. And Father, would you, um, would you just give us the grace and the mercy to let go of those nets one by one, to be James and John, and to be headstrong and bold and courageous in our faith, to be passionate for Christ, to be ambitious for you, and to be headstrong for the gospel. Thank you for these ladies. Please be with them as they leave today. Be with them um, each and every day till we return here to be together again. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.